glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that He is with us, He is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Heavenly Father, when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to call you Father. God, it demonstrates your desire for intimacy with us. And that wherever we may be in this moment, God, whatever may have happened this week, the moments of tears, the moments we feel like we fail to live up to who you have called us to be, God, the moments of joy and laughter, because you are our Father, you are with us in every one of them. You know our hearts and our minds better than we could ever know ourselves. And so, Father, as we enter into this space, we pray for your presence to dwell among us. We pray for an encounter with the Holy Spirit this morning. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and critique us. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, uh, welcome to Waterstone. My name is Paul Joslin, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, most of you know uh, that just a little over a year and a half ago, my wife and I had our first daughter uh, named Camden, um, and it's our first child. She's almost 18 months old, and I think one of the hardest things about the pandemic and COVID has been that a lot of people we really care about, including our church body, uh, haven't really gotten to be a part of her life and see the ways that she's grown up. In fact, this past week, I was picking her up from the preschool here at church and brought her through the office, and several people had not seen her in, in months since the pandemic had ended, and they couldn't believe how big she was and how much she had grown, and she has grown. She is now a toddler, and she is keeping our hands full. I don't know if, uh, if some of you who have had kids have had a toddler like this, but Camden is a toddler who never stops moving, ever. Now, when I say that Camden never stops moving, some of you, I imagine, heard me say, wow, he has a really active daughter. What I actually said is that she never stops moving, ever. And in fact, here's just a, a brief video of her. This is a typical night. Um, this is her dancing because we figured out that with her constant perpetual motion, if we can, can give her music to dance to, it kind of channels the energy and we end up with less of a mess around our house. But she never stops moving ever. I don't know if you can tell, but she has a little pink 
bunny costume on. Does anyone remember the Energizer bunny commercials way back when? The bunny that just keeps going and going and going. Camden would waddle circles around that bunny. Hey, she just never, this is my favorite part. (laughs) Interpretive dance at its best. She just never stops, ever. Jerry Seinfeld, the great theologian and philosopher, he once said that having a toddler, a two-year-old, is much like having a blender that you forget to put the lid on. I have never felt more seen and heard in my life than when I saw those words. It is impossible to contain her energy and keep her from moving. She is just this bundle of perpetual motion and energy. The only time she really stops moving is when she's going to the bathroom or she goes to bed. That's it. That's like the only break we have all day long. Now, I say all of that because this image of of constant energy, constant motion, I want you to have that image in your mind because when I say this, that there has never been a moment, nor will there ever be a moment, when God has not moved towards humanity and towards the world in love, maybe Camden gives us a small sliver of an image of what that means. God has never stopped moving to reconcile the world to himself. There has never been a moment in history when God was not actively at work to redeem the brokenness of the world we live in. There has never been a single second that God has not been on the move to make things right when he has not been moving towards the world in love. You see, this movement of God, what we call the gospel, gives us everything. This movement of God is what gives us hope in the moments of darkness when we can't see a light. This movement of God gives us us hope that no matter how sinful we are, we are still redeemable. This movement of God gives us hope that even in death, we can have the hope of the resurrection. Simply put, the gospel gives us everything. And as we've journeyed through the story of the gospel, through the story from creation until revelation, as we've looked at the life of Jesus and the movement of God throughout history is told in the scriptures in our Love This Book series. It's amazing to me the number of times that we see God show up in unimaginable places, in places that we would never expect God to show up. He does. And we come to one of those places today in the book of Philemon. In the book of Philemon. Now, if you know anything about the book of Philemon, it might cause your ears to perk up a little bit at that name. Isn't that the book that slaveholders used to uphold slavery for like hundreds of years? Isn't that the book where Paul tells a runaway slave to go back to his master? I mean, how is that a book about the reconciling work of God in the world? In fact, while Philemon is one of the smallest books in the New Testament, it is one of the most hotly contested. In fact, I have a number of friends and people that I know who cannot believe the story of Scripture because of books like Philemon. Doesn't that condone slavery? Why doesn't this book 
just outright abolish and condemn slavery as evil. And if that kind of book of a, of a, of a leader in the church sending a slave back to his master is in your holy text, I don't know if I can believe in that sort of God who would do that sort of thing. It's a hotly debated book, and and people struggle with the message that Paul is trying to communicate to Philemon through the runaway slave Onesimus. And in order to to kind of clear the air a little bit and give us a deeper understanding of the book and maybe understand some of the backstory of what's going on in this letter Paul writes, I I think it would be helpful to turn our attention to the Bible Project and and get some help from them. Because they they talk about the book in about five minutes, and they tell the whole story of, of how Philemon came to be. And I think it's a really helpful picture for us to understand the story that's at work in order for us to draw out the implications that we need to from the story. So if you would, please turn your attention to the Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him. We don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus and then a beloved assistant of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line. I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now, a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships, which moves Paul on to his request. He finally brings up Onesimus. He says that he's become Paul's child in prison meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus, and so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison, and even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus, which moves Paul on to his bold request that Philemon receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. 
Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race or gender or social or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners, who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. See, the question that hangs over the entire book of Philemon is why in the world would Paul send a slave back to his master? You see, for, for us in the year 2020, in the 21st century, we know that, that slavery is one of the most evil institutions humanity has ever come up with. 
And so anything that even sniffs like something that supports it or condones it feels off to us. And yet what you may have caught in the video is that Paul sees this situation between a slave and a slave master as an opportunity for these people to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you missed it in the video, here it is in the text when Paul writes in verse 15 and 16, perhaps the reason he was separated from you, notice how he changes the, the terms of what's happened. Not that, that Onesimus has run away, but that he's been separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. You see, Paul sees this situation, these circumstances, as an opportunity for Philemon and Onesimus to demonstrate the power of God's reconciling love and movement towards humanity. But it comes at a cost. You see, he writes this letter to Philemon, and what you have to understand is his ask to Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother and no longer as a slave, to give him his freedom, would have cost Philemon dearly. Because what you have to understand is that according to Roman law, according to the law of the day, he had every right to be angry with Onesimus. In fact, he had every right to punish his slave who had escaped him. In fact, escaping from your master was a capital punishment that you could be killed for. You see, Paul calls Philemon to give up what were lawfully his rights for the sake of the gospel. He asks him to give up his right as a slaveholder to dish out punishment, to take his vengeance, to give up his rights for the sake of the gospel. And you can hear the objections, can't you, from, from all of Philemon's friends, all of those who are also wealthy slave owners. If you free a slave who ran away, all of our slaves will run away in the hopes of getting freedom. We can't let all of our slaves go free. What about the economy? If we don't have slaves, it'll grind to a halt. We can't make the money that we need to. Or how dare you free him when he has wronged you? You need to make an example out of him so that others won't repeat his offense. And Paul, knowing all of these objections, still lays the same burden on Philemon. Let him go free and give up your rights and your identity as a slaveholder. You see, because while the gospel gives us everything, the gospel costs us everything. But Philemon is not the only person who has to, to suffer a cost for the sake of the gospel. Because if, if the task that Paul puts on Philemon is high, the task that he places on Onesimus is even higher. Because while Onesimus has no rights under Roman law, he's a slave, we know that, that morally he has the moral high ground. 
He has every right to escape and seek his freedom. Slavery is wrong. And most people would say whatever he could do to obtain his freedom is justifiable because slavery is inherently evil. And yet Paul calls this escaped slave to go back to his master, knowing full well that he may not get his freedom, knowing full well that he may be punished, and knowing that he may even be killed. And it doesn't sit right with us. How could Paul ask Onesimus to do this? How could Paul ask Onesimus to go back to his slave master knowing that this fate could await him? And you can hear the voices of everyone who has ever been oppressed before. Go back to your master? No. Onesimus is the one who was wronged. Why would he have to go back to Philemon? his master, his owner. He has every right to be angry. He has every justifiable right to seek his freedom and to remain free. Go back to the person who owned him and enslaved him. Onesimus owes Philemon nothing. And yet Paul's answer to those rebuttals is because of their relationship. Because Onesimus and Philemon are not just slave master and slave. But because they are brothers in Christ, Onesimus does actually owe Philemon something. He owes him forgiveness and reconciliation. Because their relationship as brothers in Christ trumps every other category that we use to divide ourselves into friend and foe. And so he calls Philemon at great cost to himself, or excuse me, Onesimus, at great cost to himself to go back to his slave master Philemon and to seek his freedom and reconciliation. Because while the gospel gives us everything, it costs us everything. See, the task that Paul is setting before these followers of Jesus to embody the gospel is to reach across the lines that divide friend from foe and to seek reconciliation. In the space of deep wounding, in the space where one person owned another and saw him as less than human, to seek reconciliation in that space, unimaginable to us. And yet the embodied gospel calls us to live in such a way where we seek reconciliation with those who might be our enemy. And so my question for you is, where might God be calling you to, like Philemon, give up your rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel? Where, like Onesimus, might God be calling you to forgive those who have wronged you and those who have hurt you? Where is God calling us to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ amidst division and woundedness? Where is God calling us to reach out to our enemy? Because while the gospel of Jesus gives us everything, it costs us everything. You see, I'm not sure if I can think of a more appropriate message for the church of Jesus today. 
this, this calling to reconciliation, to cross dividing lines, to go to our enemy, to seek peace. See, I saw this play out this, this week in, in a cultural moment that I think perfectly encapsulates the way our culture tries to deal with reconciliation. There was a prominent politician who was on the winning side of the latest election. And I, I use that in quotes, not because I'm necessarily trying to, to disparage the results, but because I don't know if anyone actually ever wins in politics, right? And yet he calls people to this, to the winning side. He says, if someone you love and care about voted for the other person, today might be a good day to reach out. Not to talk about politics, but to talk about things that will remind them and yourself why you love and care about them. It seems like a fairly decent proposal, but you should have seen the responses on Twitter. Reach out to them? Did they do that in 2016 when we lost? What about all of the things that they've said? I only have a finite, listen to this, I only have a finite amount of energy. Why would I spend it on someone who would not do the same for me? You see, we live in a cultural moment where people have abandoned all hope of any kind of reconciliation. Reconciliation seems unimaginable. Reach out to those who have wronged us, never get even. I mean, if anyone threatens our perceived sense of self, we have to cancel them. We eliminate those who disagree with. We eliminate those and remove those who have hurt us. And yet what Paul says in the book of Philemon could not be more contrary to our culture. He says that reconciliation does not start with them. It starts with you. Biblical reconciliation always, always, always starts with you first. And again, we live in a cultural moment that could not be more antithetical to that. We live in a moment where, where sociologists who are studying this moment, they say that, that what we are doing as a people is we are starting to form communities not based on common values, but on common enemies. They call it the common enemy identity. And that we have no vision for what community could look like based on the things we care about and the things we value and the vision and future we hope for. We are only capable of creating community around the people that we don't want. And so we alienate ourselves and we alienate the other and we do not seek reconciliation. And yet what Paul is doing in Philemon is he is, he is railing against everything that our culture stands for and saying that community should not be based on a common enemy, but on the love of your enemy. Derwin Gray, a pastor, says this about what it means to love people around you. Loving people doesn't require that we accept everything that they do. It simply requires us to see people as God sees them, loved, valuable, and redeemable, and to treat them that way. See, have we forgotten that people are redeemable? Have we forgotten that people 
All people, no matter what they believe, no matter what they think, no matter how they vote, are valuable in the sight of God. You see, the people of God, the the, the church has to step into this cultural moment with an alternative idea of what community can look like, not based on our enemies, but based on loving our enemies. To offer an alternative solution to a world that has abandoned all hope of reconciliation, that finds reconciliation unimaginable unattainable. You see, for us to embody the gospel, we have to have bigger and broader imaginations. We have to begin to believe that our God is bigger than the problems of the world. And so my question for you is, as the people of God, as the people of Waterstone, where might God be calling us? to reach out for reconciliation in unimaginable places? Where might God be calling us to step into the spaces in our culture where people think there is no purpose or benefit to reaching out to people who are different than us? How can we show an alternative community of people who love those who have wounded us, who love those who have wronged us, who love those who have hurt us? Because while the gospel gives us everything, it costs us everything. You see, the gospel cost God everything. The gospel cost God, his only son, Jesus Christ. Why would we expect following the way of Jesus to cost us any less? You know, and and what if God took the same tone with us that we did with others? What if God's language was full of the yeah buts or the whatabouts? Yeah, but they keep turning their back on me. What about all the times that they have betrayed me? Yeah, but they're so divided. What about all of the ways that they remain stuck in the same sin over and over and over again? I mean, what if that was God's tone with us? The same tone that we have for one another, but it's not. You see, some of us in this room and and watching at home, we need to hear this, that that has never been the tone of God. There has never been a moment where your actions, your beliefs, your decisions have caused him to stop moving and chasing after you. There's never been something that you have said or have done that have caused God to stop the chase after your heart. There has never been a moment in history where God has not moved towards the world in love. And that includes you. But I think all of us need to hear that when we accept that, when we believe that, when we take that truth to heart, while it gives us everything, it will cost us deeply. You see, because I think we also need to hear that while God reconciles us to himself at great cost to himself, he calls us to reconcile and be his reconcilers in the world. 
And that can come at a great cost. A few years ago, I was, um, I was living in Rapid City, uh, South Dakota, and I was leading short-term mission trips uh, for youth. They would come into the city and then we would work with, um, it, Rapid City has a lot of, of really difficult urban issues there. And a lot of it goes from, from being surrounded by reservations and, and native peoples who are down on their luck and experiencing extreme difficulty. It was one of the best summers of my life, but it was also one of the most difficult. I was up every morning around 6 a.m. and wouldn't go to bed until about 11, leading these trips and working with people. We lived in a church, slept on a mattress for three and a half months, an air mattress. It was really difficult. And I remember at one point getting really discouraged and, and talking to the pastor of the small Lutheran church I was living in for the summer. And this man, he had dedicated his life to trying to see reconciliation take place in this community, this small town of Rapid City and with the Lakota people. I remember coming to him as a, as a young man and so overwhelmed by the problems that I had seen that summer, so overwhelmed by the hopelessness and the poverty and the devastation and the alcoholism and I just said, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep seeking reconciliation in impossible spaces? And I'll never forget his answer. He said that that following Jesus is not about whether or not we fail, but whether or not we are faithful. See, sometimes pursuing the way of reconciliation, pursuing the way of Jesus, seeking reconciliation in the unimaginable spaces can feel like a fool's errand. Why waste our time on those people? Why waste our time seeking after them? And yet that is what God calls us to be. And that it's not based on whether or not it works, but whether or not we are faithful to that calling as his people because he has never stopped being faithful to us. So where can we have a little bit more imagination? Waterstone, where can we begin to seek reconciliation in the spaces that seem like they are too far gone? Where can we begin to see that God is at work in the spaces that feel like there is no hope left. That is where God calls his people to. To like Philemon and Onesimus, embody the good news that God has never stopped moving towards the world in love. And that while that may cost us everything. When we count the cost, will we see that it is worthy of the calling Jesus has placed on us? Heavenly Father, God, I know many of us struggle to know whether or not your love for us is actually capable of redeeming us. You talk about reconciliation and unimaginable spaces. That feels like my heart in most days. And yet, God, you pursue. God, and when we look at the world, we can be so overwhelmed at the calling that you have placed on us, the calling to step into spaces that feel too big for us. 
And yet may we, the people of Waterstone, believe that our God is bigger. May we believe that we do not go into those spaces alone, but that you go before us. And may we be a people willing to lay down our rights, to offer forgiveness for those who have wronged us, to show the world a love that it is incapable of recognizing apart from you. God, may we be willing to take up the cost and pursue your kingdom in all spaces to follow you as you move towards the world in love. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.